live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show, with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich, and now, here's Jay. Good evening and welcome to the Bo's Nose Show. And it's a nice Thursday evening here in January in Lane County with the usual weather out here. It's raining. Uh, so anytime you want to get in and ask a question, you just uh, can call the show. Uh, it's, and I'm, as I say that, I don't have the number in front of me. I'll get it to you in just a second. Uh, it is a live show. Uh, it's uh Six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven, and then you just press one if you have a question, and our call screener will pick you up and get your question to us. Again, that's six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. And tonight uh, we've got kind of a special show, a little bit different. It's not exactly politics, but it is politics in some ways. We're going to be talking with Jan Aho uh, from the Pearl Buck Center here in Eugene, Oregon. And it's a really interesting uh, situation as there's been a, a uh, series of lawsuits and changes in rules around uh, what they call sheltered workshops and uh, how it affects this particular agency that deals with developmentally disabled folks. So I'm going to bring Jan in here and welcome her to the show. So, uh, Jan, are you there? I am here. And, and you have somebody with you also from Pearl Buck. Can you introduce yes, I her? Have, yes, I have Holly Powell here. Hello. And uh, Holly is our director of uh, community uh, services, which include employment and supported living. Great, great. So I guess we ought to start off for those that aren't familiar because, you know, we've had people listening as far away as Missouri uh, the last couple weeks. What is Pearl Buck Center? Um, well, it's a comprehensive program uh, that serves a wide range of individuals um, uh, who have developmental disabilities. I think the best way to describe it is uh, to say that we have five different programs or four different programs um, that are serving from children whose parents have disabilities. We have a preschool we have a sheltered workshop that serves over 150 adults uh, that provide employment for them. And then we have day services that serves between 50 and 60 individuals that are activities, uh, more recreational community involvement. And then we have our community-based services, which include employment, of serving close to 50 people yeah. in jobs in the community, as well as supporting individuals who are living independently but need a little extra support so that they can do that safely. And there's about 30 to 40 people in that program. Correct. So does that yeah. give you a, in a nutshell, kind of what we are? Mainly it it's providing all all kinds of choices so that an individual who comes in has a range of choices where they can go to fulfill whatever their goals are. And um, so that's how we do it. And we've been in the community since the uh, early 50s. And I can give you a little background if you're interested. Yeah, I'm kind of interested, you know, where's the name come from? Yeah, um, our founder, Liesl Wechter, was an immigrant from Germany. Uh, when she came here in the very early 50s, uh, she was leaving Germany, uh, had left Germany in the um, kind of middle 40s, I think. She was a special education teacher there. And when Hitler came to power, it became unsafe for uh, individuals with disabilities, and obviously everybody knows about people who had uh, Jewish family members. Um, she actually had her students taken from her. Um, not many people know that. And so that was a very life-changing event for her. 
and forced her to leave Germany. Uh, she ended up at the university or in Eugene because her husband, who also fled, got a job at the uh, university in the architecture department. Uh, when she got here, she interviewed uh, at the different schools trying to find a job where she could teach special ed. In the 1950s, hard to believe, we did not have any special education programs. So being the person that she was and how passionately she believed that every child has the right to learn, including kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities, she started a program in her home. And uh, word went out very quickly. She started with five students, and before she knew it, she was uh, leasing classroom space in a local uh, church and then had land donated and the building, uh, a building built that uh, grew. But because she had come from another um, country, she wanted to name the school after somebody who was famous. And in the 50s, Pearl Buck uh, had written many books, uh, most of them around China, but she also wrote a little article in a magazine called The Child Who Never Grew. And it was her personal story of being a parent of a child who had uh, developed very profound developmental delays uh, due to the fact that she was a PKU baby. Uh, and I'm not going to try to say the long word that that represents, but it's an enzyme that destroys the brain. Um, and uh, the baby was dormant born normally, but then declined very rapidly over the years. And for Pearl Buck, that was a very, very hard um, journey for her to come to acceptance of who her daughter was and who she became. So our founder, Lisa Wechter, wrote her when she read the article and told her she was starting this school, and she wanted to name it after somebody who was famous. Uh, Pearl Buck happened to have been the first woman to win a Nobel Prize as well as a Pulitzer Prize for literature. And so it was pretty noteworthy. So Pearl Buck wrote back and said, I don't know why anybody would want to name a school Pearl Buck, but these children have a special place in my heart. So please do that. So that's how we got the name. And I have to say, over the years, a lot of discussion, it loops around. Um, should we change our name? Because it doesn't describe anything about what we do. But because of that history, everybody involved with the organization has been reluctant to change our name. So we are the Pearl Buck Center. Fascinating. And, and, and an interesting story in and. You know, it's interesting because I I read a book recently that that focused on the the issues in Germany during Hitler's reign with uh, disabled children and all that. Uh, and right. I, I was I was kind of it was kind of an eye opener to me. Everybody hears about the Holocaust and what he did with with gypsies and 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 people of the Jewish faith, but no right. one really hears what he did with with uh, disabled children was just right. just as bad. And, and it was, was, was yeah it was it was terrible and uh mm -hmm. and i didn't realize that that your your founder actually came from that background and, and it left left right. germany so that 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 that's i learned something new i under i knew the co connection with pearl buck and her her daughter but i didn't mm -hmm. know i didn't know that the, the nazi Lisa, germany connection yeah. there right right yeah and so, i well, think what that, was for me, what was interesting, too, Jay, was that the United States, we often think of ourselves as so advanced. You know, we're so doing everything on the cutting edge. And that in that area of educating and educating children with special needs, we were far behind. So she was coming from a country in the 40s that had special education classes, and we didn't have those classes until the mid seventies, nineteen seventy four. So yeah. it's just interesting. 
Yeah, I I grew up in the uh, suburbs of Washington D.C. in Montgomery County, Maryland, and uh-huh. in a very uh, avant-garde uh, school district. And they had a special ed school near in my neighborhood in the '60s, and this was probably mm-hmm. 1965. And it was an exception that this school district right. had an actual school, uh, a se- but it was a segregated school for special ed. Um, mm-hmm. which was kind of, mm-hmm. that was, that was the model at the time versus where mm-hmm. they now kind of more integrate it with, with, uh, the, the normal classrooms where, right. where they can. Right. So, right. so, uh, you know, even in the sixties, it was brand new <laughs> and, oh, and yeah. this, you know, here she was had special ed back in the forties in Germany. So yeah, we weren't yeah. always the leader in everything. Yeah. yeah that's, nope. that's been a, and, and sometimes we still aren't either. Yeah, but but it's one of those oh, things we like to believe we are. <laughs> right, 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 right. So when I when I think about where we started as the school in the fifties, and then in the sixties, one of the things that happened because the students that came into the program were all ages when they entered the program, and in the sixties they were becoming young adults and were no longer really interested in school but were more interested in work. And so she started what they called the Work Activity Center at that time. And it was, you know, at that time there were no copy machines that collated. Uh, There were no machines that put labels on. And so they were doing that kind of work for little businesses and big businesses in our community. And that was uh, kind of some of the beginning works of what became now our, I would say, pretty sophisticated uh, sheltered workshop uh, began out of that uh, work activity center uh, in the 60s. Um, So they were doing some packaging, small packaging of things, but very, very, very simple things um, in the 60s. In the 70s, and it was at the same time that mainstreaming was starting, and um, some of the students in the school were given the opportunity to mainstream into their home district. So we started having empty classes because students started, you know, going into their community schools, which um, was great for those students. And uh, the United Way did a needs assessment uh, in conjunction with University of Oregon and discovered that there were some individuals who had some cognitive challenges who were parenting their kids. Now, know that this is in the very early 70s um, or mid-70s. And at that time, there were no brain scans that were being done that happened you know, later in the 80s and the 90s. But this community was concerned, and the leadership at United Way was concerned that there were individuals who were parenting children who had cognitive challenges. The parents had the challenges, not the kids. And they were concerned that the kids' brains would not develop because they wouldn't get the appropriate stimulation that they needed for their brains to develop. I was the director of the preschool for many years, and one of the things that I didn't learn until later that was very interesting to me is when a baby is born, unlike the heart, which comes and starts beating, and the lungs that start breathing, and the kidneys start doing their thing, and the liver starts doing their thing, and the stomach does its thing, and the bowels definitely do their thing with the baby. The the brain is waiting for stimulation from its environment for it to, what I would simply put, wake up. So we've heard about the Romanian orphans um, in the 80s where they were not touched, they were not held, they were not talked to, and those babies became profoundly delayed. And it wasn't that they were born that way. It was that they were not given a chance for their brains to fully develop because they did not get the stimulation. And the stimulation is simple. It's a touch. It's a sound. It's a smell. It's all of, and the singing, 
all those little things are things that make a brain wake up. And without that, frankly, the baby's brains don't develop. Young children's brains don't develop. That was a new concept for me. I honestly thought that the brain that I was born with was what it is today. But it was just kind of like a sponge waiting for the world around me to stimulate it. And so our lead, uh, the United Way folks, they said, we need to start a preschool for those kids so that they have a chance to get the stimulation that the parents may not be able to give them because we want to make sure those kids can enter school ready to learn. I think that I think the community needs to be really, really proud of that because there is no other preschool like this in the United States that is specifically designed to serve these children and their parents at no cost to the family. Wow. It's a cost to us, but it's a cost to the family. So that happened in the 70s, and that was pretty um, – it was a wonderful opportunity for us because we had classroom space here at Pearl Buck Center. And, and, and it was something that has continued to go and serve those families all these years. So that was in the 70s. In the 80s, the uh, state did some incentivizing, which we'll get to circle back around, for community employment. And so it was perfect for us because we were interested in that. And uh, so we began a little more robust community employment at taking individuals that were in the work activity center, sheltered workshop, into a more um, um, community-based employment. So that was in the 80s. And then in the 90s, um, Fairview closed. That was significant, um, and it was driven by some of the same things that are driving the sheltered workshop issue today, which was getting people out of a segregated, non-integrated environment uh, and bringing them back into the community. And so when that was happening, we were contacted by the state uh, because we did have space at our building on that was on West Amazon at the time uh, for um, individuals to come for a day program. And when it started, we only had 12 people in that program, and they were people who had been living um, at Fairview State Hospital and then were being integrated back into the community. And so that was what we call our life-enhancing activities program today, uh, the LEAP program. So that program started in the 90s. Uh, and then in the 2000s, we were busting out of our building, uh, both of the buildings, uh, the building up on West Amazon. And what I forgot to say was that in the 60s, we built a building in, on West 5th for our sheltered workshop and our, what we called our production uh, center. And uh, so we've located a building here on West 5th, on West 1st, I'm sorry, between Bertelsen and Seneca, and um, that was large enough at 50,000 square feet for us to be able to move all programs onto one site. And so we uh, started a capital campaign and um, moved into the building and integrated all programs onto one site. So we've been here since 2008 was when the preschool joined the adult services that moved in first in that uh, during the winter of 2007. And so we've been in our new building since then, and we are now busting out of our seams um, at our new building. So the services and the need for the services, which is very interesting at all levels and in every program, have not decreased. Uh, they've increased. And I think one of the things that um, mm, I don't know if I want to get into this right now, but is driving all of the kinds of things that we're dealing around funding and funding of these kinds of services 
is that I think people imagine that with technology and everything that we'd have, we'd have fewer children um, with disabilities being born. And it's quite the opposite. With all of our technology, babies that used to never survive are surviving, and some of them are surviving with significant needs. And uh, the cost that that is putting on to our uh, Medicaid system is great. And uh, our programs for our adults and for young children who have disabilities are funded through that program. So mm-hmm. that kind of gives yeah, just kind of putting that out there. Yeah. Well, pretty interesting. You know, it it, it is kind of interesting. You know, I have a friend, Bob Bergman, who's uh, developmentally disabled. And not too long ago, 10 or 15 years ago, you were talking about how back in the 70s they were collating documents because there weren't machines that did it right. then. Uh, mm-hmm. I think about 15 years ago he was putting records on microfilm as yes. as something that he could do. And, and, and at the time I was working for uh, Eugene water electric board and he used to do the microfilming of their payroll records. So wow. he used to joke with me that he was going to, he was going to mess up my, my paychecks if I, if I didn't, <laughs> if I wasn't nice to him. <laughs> you were nice to him. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's oh, a funny, funny guy. He's a, a, he, yeah. he remembers interesting facts and he remembers that I went to the University of Maryland who is the Terrapins, and they shortened that to Terps, which, you know, T-E-R-P-S. And every time I see Bob and he hears my voice, he goes, hey, Jay, how you doing, you old Terp? And people (laughs) overhear that and don't realize he's saying Terp with a P, (laughs) not with a D. You you may be sorry that you said that on the... Radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, but, but yeah, what a what a fun and happy personality he is, and just love uh-huh. love being around him. He's a great guy. Uh, right. And but you know, again, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, time, you know, technology changes. Nobody puts de- de- you know stuff on microfish anymore. <laughs> it's oh, all stored no. in the cloud. No. Yeah. Yeah, so, I know. So, Isn't that a frightening thought? Yeah. Yeah. Where's that cloud? Where's that cloud? Yeah. You know, I have yeah, recently learned it's a chicken ranch, you know, out in central Oregon, you know, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's not up in the sky like I thought it no, was. Anyway. No, it's a yeah, server ranch somewhere. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So so it sounds like you actually grew from inside the organization. You weren't an outside hire as executive director. Is that is that uh an accurate statement? Uh, yeah, I was uh, the director of the preschool um, for, I think it was 16 years, uh, when the uh, person who was the executive director of that time was leaving, and the board asked me if I would step in as interim, partly because uh, I was one of the um, senior staff, and I had been here longer than anybody else had been here. Um, and so I had a, a good sense of the, um, you know, history of the organization and that. So I did step in, and in, in the process, um, I I had decided that with the urging of um, two of the other senior staff that I would be um, interested in applying for the position. And so I did actively go after it and it was a competitive process it was a it was a challenging experience for me um i felt like i grew a lot just going through the process and um and i was really honored when the board offered me that position and i think it i think it's 6 years ago that i was offered that position and accepted mm-hmm. that and um so yeah came up through you know through the preschool, had a little bit of experience in adult services. When I was initially hired, I was overseeing the what we called the LEAP program, the day activities program uh, for the adults as well as the preschool. Uh, but I had a lot of learning to do. And one of the things that I have found, and I think anybody else that's in a position such as mine, 
is that you really have to keep looking for people that are around you who are smarter than you are and who know things um, about different things that you don't know. And I've been very lucky to have a senior staff um, that is like that, that they know their programs, they know them well, and I can rely on them to... um, you know, follow through in what they need to, find out what they need to if they don't already know it. And so, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a great experience for me. Yeah. So, let's see, I was counting. That was 16 years as the as the yeah, preschool director, and then there was probably yeah. a little bit of time of interim in there, and then at least six years as executive director. So I'm counting about 23 years with Pearl Buck. Something like that. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Pretty close to that. Pretty close yeah. to so that. I was doing I was doing both jobs for six six months, and mm-hmm. when I was hired, somebody said to me, "Oh my gosh, it must be so hard for you to leave the preschool because you've been doing that, you know, for so long. This must be such a difficult transition." And I said, "I cannot tell you what a relief it is to have the new director in place." And for the preschool, so I can just focus on one job. So uh, it was uh, it was a happy time actually uh, to be yeah. able to move into that position with that being my sole focus. Yeah, yeah. So it means you got the you go back and have 26 years of experience of working with uh, folks that have uh, intellectual and developmentally dis- disabilities, and probably uh, in have, a day actually. Uh, what I will say is kind of my background before I came here was um, I my degree um, and my education was in uh, speech pathology and hmm. general education. But at that time, I was able to get a dual credential, and then I taught special day. I was a teacher of special ed kids, and so my whole career – uh, has been in special ed. My very first internship as a speech pathologist was with kids who had orthopedic uh, disabilities, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, and all kinds of different things. And that experience changed my life. I knew I would never be a speech therapist in a public school setting working with what I would call regular kids. I really enjoyed the special population. It was something that um, I just liked and I felt really comfortable in. And so I was a special day class teacher for a number of years. And then I was a speech pathologist um, in a a program serving kids with special needs. And then I moved uh, up here and uh, worked with survivors of traumatic brain injury that were adults uh, before I became director of the preschool. So my, when I got the job in the preschool, I felt like I was bringing everything I had ever done in the past to what I was going to get a chance to do next. And so it's been a you know, you look at it and you go, yeah, that's how you got here, and you never would have thought that's what you were going to do uh, when I first started school. But it's been a, it's been a good journey. I've enjoyed it. It sounds like it, and and you know, you always, you know, you always wonder how you end up in what you're doing. I, I often wonder how I ended up a county commissioner uh, from uh-huh. being a civil engineer. Yeah, which is a, right. which right. is a whole other show. Uh, right, right. But. And, you know, it's interesting. I want to give Holly a chance to say how she ended up here because I think her story is interesting, too, because you never, quite never know. So I'm putting her on the spot because I want her to say what happened to her when she came and interviewed her here. Okay. She is putting me on the spot just a little bit. Um, I moved to um, Oregon about 10 years ago from the Midwest and was a stay-at-home mom for a few years once we moved here. And it was time for me to start looking for part-time work, and there was a position at the Pearl Buck Center, which I had never heard of, and um, for whatever reason in my life, had never been around anybody with disabilities. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, For whatever reason. I don't know why that is, but that's how my life was. I had owned businesses in the past and came here and interviewed, and they did a tour, and I call it my first Eugene moment. Um, 
because you got to remember, I'm a Midwest girl, <laughs> and uh, was supposed to be here for whatever reason. And uh, eight years later, here I am. Um, I was part-time admin assistant. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, started out doing that for about a year. And a typical nonprofit, you, um, <laughs> if you're willing to do some work, they will give it to you. <laughs> and uh, eight years later, now I'm the director of community services. And so when I interview people and, and they're concerned about not having an ex any experience working with people with disabilities, I reassure them that it, you don't need the experience. You either have it or you don't. And uh, and this is a place that you either want to be or you don't. And when people come um, and walk in our doors, it's it's life changing, I think, for people. So that's my story. Yeah. Yep. And and, and this, I've toured the facilities several times over the years, and and every time I tour it, it's it's a great experience. And I, I know it, I know what you mean when you walk through the doors. You either know you want to be there or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. I'd like to, you know, now between the two of you, there's years and years of experience. Um, but particularly, Jan, you've you've kind of been around long enough and have described the history of how we've moved from, uh, you know, the original schools that were you know, that were set up to where they went to mainstreaming of, of students with the student population. But then uh, that that opened up the ability to have the uh, uh, adult um, workshop the shelter workshop there and also, you know, the ability to have the preschool for uh, children of people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And now there's some, some changes coming um, that are part of uh, kind of almost a national movement, but also in settlement of some uh, legal uh, actions. And first that kind of, if you could kind of describe for our listeners what it constitutes a closed or sheltered workshop. And, you know, if you kind of describe that for folks, because the changes are particularly around that issue. Right. Um, okay. A sheltered workshop, I think in the eyes of the state, they've kind of eliminated this number, but um, in prior, earlier this year, they are in the, earlier last year, I guess, they were saying anytime you have eight or more people with a disability together uh, doing anything, they didn't really care what it was, uh, living together, working together, playing together, whatever they were doing, um, that is a sheltered workshop. Uh, it's hmm. congregating uh, people together with disabilities um, that um, is segregating them from the rest of the community. So um, I, I don't know. I'm looking at Holly saying, does that best describe it? I think it that's how the state. That's how the state would describe it. Um, they're kind of changing on that number thing. You know, they're kind of being more vague um, in that. But it, it is whenever you congregate people under a roof. That is a sheltered workshop, uh, and and they are doing work. Now, one of the really, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's a driving force around that. I think there's two things that have happened. One is the cost of services have gone up. There is no doubt about that uh, across the nation and from the federal government, which is kind of where those monies eventually come into our door. They start there, they come through the state, and then they come to us to purchase services that we provide for the individuals. Clearly, all of us who have ever worked in this field uh, want individuals to be a part of the community as much as they choose to be a part of the community and is appropriate for the individual and that the person feels it's an appropriate thing. So the rub comes is that um, what happened in Jul on July 1st of last year was that pressure, from pressure from the state, from the lawsuit, um, and I'll wrap back around to that in a moment, the front door to the sheltered workshop was closed for any individual who would like to enter it after July 1st, particularly any of the students that are in high school who would have been coming out of programs 
who may wanted to use this as a transition place to learn skills and to learn about what work is um, as an avenue to employment, that was no longer possible, and it is no longer possible. So our front door is closed, uh, and the state has made that abundantly clear. So it's closed. So we cannot enroll any more any more individuals into the program. What they are saying is that as of um, July, I think it's July 2019, is when uh, they say they will no longer fund anybody that is in a sheltered workshop. So we're in 2016. So between now and 2019, our job is to assess which of our clients are wanting to work in the community and really put every effort we have into finding jobs for those individuals and really helping them to do that. Um, our big challenge, there's two big challenges in that, is that we have over 150 people right now who are in our sheltered workshop. When this was uh, happening as in last May and June, uh, like in April of last year, I think we had like 120 individuals. That's pretty close. And But within the, in the last two, three months before those doors closed, programs in our area closed their sheltered workshops and asked us to take those individuals into our program. And so we did. So our numbers ballooned uh, to the point of having 150 people. So I want to clarify that's not 150 people every single day. Uh, people, Some people come three days a week, some come five, some come two, some come in the morning, some come in the afternoon. So it's very different. But it is serving 150 people in the sheltered workshop. So our challenge is to find jobs, and those jobs have to be community jobs, and they have to be competitive employment. So they need to make at least minimum wage. And we will provide support. We will provide a job coach uh, and support for that individual. But we need businesses who are interested in working with us to help match the skills that our individuals have and the interests that they have to work in certain places and to find employers who want to partner with us. And um, we've had one example that I'll use that was uh, pretty heartwarming to me anyway was um, Togo's. Um, John Anderson came and visited a couple years, it was last year, early last year, and he walked in, and I had we had talked, and he was coming in, and I thought he was going to talk to me about making a significant donation to the organization, right? And he said, well, really what I want to talk about is I've started these new stores, and I want to employ some of your people. Uh, are you interested? And needless to say, I said, oh, yeah. We are very interested. So I hooked him up with Lori Polk, uh, one of our job developers, and they talked. And he subsequently has hired three individuals uh, in his stores. And then one day I'm coming to work and this LTD bus drives by and plastered across the whole side of the bus is uh, Togo's Hires Pearl Buck Center uh people to work in their, you know, store, something like that. I can't remember. You can look at it somewhere. I know those buses are around. But it was it was wonderful. You know, they were proud. And I said, John, thank you so much. And he said, no, thank you. This is good business. And so we need lots of people like that in our community if we're going to be able to find work for people um, so that they can fulfill what their dreams are uh, for community employment. The challenge in that, though, is we have other individuals who, at this point anyway, 
are saying they don't want to work in the community. And our board, uh, and myself included, are very committed to being able to provide work for them in a sheltered workshop setting as long as they want that. Uh, Funding could become an issue for that, but frankly, we are doing very well in our production work, and we have incredible business partners that give us lots of meaningful work for our people so that um, I'm confident we'll be able to survive um, this next phase in Pro Buck Center's um, career and life as it is. It keeps evolving. It'll continue to evolve. Um, The other thing um, is that we are looking at um, kind of, we've got this wonderful facility We've got wonderful uh, things that are here for people to work on, and we have uh, people who really know how to help people get ready for work. And so we are looking at, um, and this is not widespread, so hopefully there's not a lot of people listening, um, but we are looking at really developing a vocational academy that would Uh, provide an opportunity for individuals uh, to come here who are interested in work and want to work and want to learn skills. Uh, It could be as simple as I want to be able to learn how to uh, drive a forklift and be certified to do that so that I can get a job, you know, working at Weyerhaeuser or Bymart. And um, so we are exploring this. With the state, it's going to be a long process, uh, but we are um, we are really looking seriously and have begun conversations with the state of how that might look and where funding might come for that. But it would open the door again to the young students coming out of high school. Interesting. Yeah. It it, it leads me to a little bit of a question, though. Uh, you know, there is. You know, I, I'm, you know, had, you know, close contact, like, with, you know, Bob Bergman, who um, mm-hmm. is, is fairly high-functioning, although he's uh, wheelchair-confined and blind, so he also has other issues to deal with at the same time. So it's difficult for him to be in an open workplace without assistance. Um, and then I have a stepbrother um, who was a high-functioning um developmentally disabled person he even had a driver's license and drove but Mm -hmm. even he uh, was able to be in in an unsheltered workplace but ultimately Mm -hmm. became became a victim of a sexual predator um yes and and and, you know so it was rather disheartening that that you you can't you know it's very difficult sometimes to these uh you know, personalities can be almost defenseless to that sort of person uh, at times. So, so it's really, really you know, uh, sickening, disheartening. Their people will take advantage of the, that, those folks. But um, there, you know, there's a kind of a not quite the day um, folks that are there for um, stimulation and, and uh, other activities that, that come to your day mm-hmm. center. Right, but there's not always folks that that have the ability to function in a workplace uh, and may not even be able to express whether they their their desire to not be in a closed workshop or or to be in an open workplace. They're always gonna. There's always going to be that um, lower functioning um, group of folks. How's the state dealing with that? Is there they're making any exception for those folks that almost have to have a, a sheltered work workshop, and it makes them at least feel more useful than uh, say a day day activity center um, where they're just they're not doing really something useful where they feel like they have a job. You know, it's amazing how much those those folks that are kind of in the lower end of of um, the functionality are proud that they have a job, you know, even even if it's, even if it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, collating papers or, or whatever it is, that's very simple. Um, you know, you know, I've toured your facilities and I've met some of them and, and, 
it's just you know is there anything in in the this whole discussion around trying to mainstream and and get rid of shelter workshops that there is a population that maybe that's actually what serves them best currently there is not the state feels it's it's an employment first movement um that everyone should be working um regardless of the disability and it is um an agency like like ours job to um to assist that person regardless of the job. So if it's someone that, again, is maybe nonverbal, needs assistance toileting, they still feel that there is a job in the community for them. And um, it would be up to this a provider agency like ours to support that person while they're at that job. Um, I think one of the issues we're going to find is that it's very costly um, these are people that are going to need one-on-one support at all times. Um, mm-hmm. It's a challenge. I, as the community director, am passionate about employment in the community. And um, I feel if someone wants a job in the community, it's our job to find one, regardless of their disability. But I also feel that we have a place here that is um, a safe environment, and it's a choice. And they can come here, like you said, and have value. And so it's challenging. It's, uh, but that's that's the state's position at this point. And there, are, unfortunately, if it continues as it is, there will be folks that will not, according to the state, um, possibly not have a place like ours to go to, and probably sit at home, honestly. Um, and that's very sad. And I, I think there needs to be continued to be looked at. Yeah, because so, the interaction is so important to those folks. I mean, this is their community. Um, as you've been here, this is where their friends are. This is where they feel safe. Um, and, you know, we have ourselves have rights to go to work and have our friends when we can choose where we want to go. And they should have that same right. So I I think you you summed up kind of the dilemma that we find ourselves in that Holly described so well, which is that when you talked about the individual that was, um, you know, victim of a sexual predator, um, for many of our folks, not many, but yes, many, frankly, their ability and their desire for friendship is very strong. And they make themselves vulnerable to people who are not um, interested in their the person's uh, safety and best interests. So it's it's a dilemma for us, and um, and it's a challenge for family members when we have many of our parents absolutely will not allow their individual to their son or daughter to work in the community for precisely that reason. And uh, one of our board members said, so my daughter has 12 to 13 different kinds of seizures. Uh, She needs somebody to change her when she soils herself, and she needs to be fed. So are we really going to ask one of her coworkers to do that? Because ultimately that is what the state wants. We will provide a job coach, but in many cases they want us eventually to get what they call natural supports, so the people they work with. Well, the fact is um, that's a really tough ask for any business, and we're a business too. And so I understand what that would mean to a business. And so um, it's putting – there's a lot of pressures on this. And then I want to go about what you said, Jay, that I really appreciated about work and work being meaningful is that um, one of the phrases that has come out of the state that has been so hard for me to swallow is we want people to have meaningful work. And what many people don't realize is the work that the people are doing here is meaningful to that individual. And it's very disrespectful for somebody to demean that 
and to demean that value that that individual feels about a job well done. So you hit it on the head, and that's exactly where we find ourselves uh, today. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a real dilemma. And, and to add to that, the fact that you can no longer take kids that are yeah. that are matriculating out of high school and and bring them into at least the shelter workshop long yeah. enough for them to get the skills to be able to deal with a an unsheltered workplace. Right. Um, that that's. Hopefully, you guys are will will eventually convince the state that your um, uh, your program there to to give people work skills will will qualify and they'll let they'll reopen the front door to at least that that um, training uh, program. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of kind of kind of renaming some of rebranding some of what you do, but it still doesn't change the fact that there's going to be people graduating out of the school system um, that are going to fit that that lower level of functionality set that would be better off possibly in a sheltered workplace um, than they would be out in the public. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even, and, and, and there's even some high functioning um, yeah. folks that, that actually yeah. would prefer the shelter, you know, that will actually tell you, I like it here better than I like it. You know, I, I've done both, you know, some of them have actually yep. had the opportunity to do both and they would much rather be, in your sheltered workshop mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. you know, folks that they identify with as, as their peers. Right. Yeah. Um, We've, um, yeah um, we actually have some individuals here that I would consider high, higher functioning. We've actually got them jobs in the community. Um, one gentleman, we've had got him three jobs in the community over the years, and he quits every one of them to come back. Um, mm-hmm. And for multiple reasons, so it, it is. This is this is their place they want to be. One one of the one of the individuals I love something he told his sister. I really like it at Probox Center because I don't have to pretend to be normal. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that sums it up. I mean for all of us, yeah, you know. But I mean that really it it kind of says a lot in that uh, statement. Yeah, for somebody in you know in that you know, emotional developmental state, that is truly comforting to be able to be yourself. Yeah. And, and, and when you force them, you know, that, that square peg into the round hole, they, they're not comfortable. So I can see where, where you would get a statement like that out of somebody where I really like being here because I can be myself. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's really cute and fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, you know, it's an interesting issue, um, and I understand the motivations behind some of it. You know, it oh, it's back to too. the 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 all. You know, it's the same thing with mental health issues, um, and the you know, yes. everybody gets the picture of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and and uh, oh, nurse yeah. ratchet. Um, oh yeah. You know, and, and we all knew that was wrong, but mm-hmm. completely. You know, I think we finally realized that you know, with our homeless population being uh, quite, you know, over 50% having a mental health issue, we've realized we may have gone too far. That there's some of those people that actually might function better in an institutionalized situation of some degree. It's just a matter of, of finding the the happy medium. There, there, there is a need maybe for that shelter workshop. And there's also the need for folks like John Anderson's that will employ people, um, Right. So, so uh, probably the other know. thing that you, Jay, excuse me, I was going to say something that was interesting that you said about mental illness is that, and the homeless people is that also a lot of homeless people are also people who do have some cognitive issues, and many of them have not been identified and dealt with mm-hmm. early on in their lives because they just were not. And many of the individuals that we have, a very high percentage, have dual diagnosis. It is not just a cognitive issue. Um, it isn't just an individual with Down syndrome. Um, it is an individual that may have schizophrenia as well as severe cognitive issues. It, you know what I mean? And so yeah. we're dealing with people with very complex 
health issues and uh, cognitive issues and mental health issues. It's not um, it's not simple, the people that we're dealing with. And I'm thinking of a young woman who had a job, has had several jobs in the community, and very verbal, um, very independent, um, you know, can fight for her own rights and everything else. But she is so fragile that if you suggest that maybe she didn't do the thing quite right, you could lose her for three days. She'd be gone. She's out of the building. I'm not coming back. I made a mistake. So every job she had, when somebody said, well, could you do it this way? Simple, nice, everything else said as nicely as possible. But her self-esteem is so fragile that she could not take that in any job. And even here with staff who are trained and aware and all of that, that kind of feedback is devastating. So when it's not a simple issue, I guess that's what I'm saying. This is not simple. And so just as the lawsuit that was filed against the state for people who felt that individuals were being unfairly kept in sheltered workshops who wanted community employment, I think the writing is on the wall that there could be a lawsuit for individuals who feel they are being forced to have jobs in the community and they want to work in a sheltered setting because that's where they feel safe and that's where they feel successful. So I think the potential is there. Um, I'm not up for it, but I think there may be other individuals who are. Yeah, so that kind of brings me to, you know, we only got about four, three or four minutes left here. What can mm-hmm. the public do, you know, to help you out? Is is it a matter of maybe lobbying uh, their their state representatives and making them understand the situation better? Is it, is it, um, you know, who can they be talking to about this? If they, you know, if they, they've been listening to the program, they kind of understand the problem now and they want to kind of, how can they help? I think the advocacy is a big piece. We have a, uh, our delegation here from Lane County that serves our area anyway are very, very, very supportive of ProBuck Center. We're very fortunate that way. But that that view is not shared um, throughout the legislature. Um, and frankly, Jay, a lot of it is it is driven by money. It the the state knows unless we do close sheltered workshops, Medicaid won't fund it. They won't pay for the service. So the only alternative is then for the state to say, and I think one state did it. I thought Actually, I thought it was Maryland. You could check on that. Uh, but one state did say, okay, you won't, federal government, you won't pay for it. We value this service. We will pay for it. But that is a hard one to sell. Anybody, yeah. you know, you know what the resources and revenue is right now just for the county. Magnify that for the state. So it's very, very complicated. But advocacy that more and more people, yes, any of that to people that they know who are in a position to impact, yes, that kind of thing is important. For people who own businesses, consider you have no idea what a change it would make for the culture in your organization to have an individual with a disability working there. It just starts with one person. Yeah. Just one individual that's hired, and then they're talking to other businesses um, because they're going to have some amazing people working for them. And so that is also a big key um, to um, helping us and helping the individuals we serve. Great. Well, hopefully a lot of businesses will hear the program. Yeah, yeah. And do and I encourage people who are interested to actually see firsthand to just con- connect with us and come and see and then we can talk further about how you can support. Well, I want to thank you very much Jan and Holly for uh, being on the show tonight. It was very educational and hopefully it was a pleasure, things will you No, know, 
I appreciate it. Hopefully things will work out well for you guys in the future and folks will talk to their legislators. But most of all, they should get a hold of you because I think um, touring your facilities is truly eye-opening. So thank, thank you, you and that's it for the Bozo Show tonight. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.